Hi, dear listeners. Welcome to our new episode of Leiden Psychology Perspective podcast. I'm Zeynep. I'm a second year psychology student at Leiden University. My name is Sarah and I'm a third year psychology student at Leiden University and I'm also part of the podcast team. Hi, I'm Linda. I'm 21 years old and I'm a master's student in journalism and new media and I'm also part of the podcast team. Hi everyone, my name is Raymond and I'll also be joining today in the podcast. Well, in today's episode, we speak with a professor of social and cognitive psychology from Leiden University, Lotte van Dula. She specializes in people's decision-making behavior and what role fear plays in this. She investigates how our emotions play out in different settings and fields, such as health, financial behavior, and legal decision-making. Well, let's get started. First of all, welcome, Lotte. Could you please introduce yourself? Uh, well, uh, thank you, Zeynep. Uh, I'm happy to introduce myself further, but you already uh, provided a good description of me and uh, my areas of uh, research. Uh, one thing is I'm, a, I'm in the social, economic and organizational psychology unit. So although I have a background in cognitive psychology, I do not work as a cognitive psychology uh, unit. Uh Okay, and uh, what are you currently researching? Which uh, studies are you conducting? Um, I'm involved in a bunch of different projects. Uh, I like to sort of uh, sample broadly. Uh, one uh, project that I'm involved in is uh, linked to a new center that we launched uh, last year, uh, which involves the Center for um, Psychology and Economic uh, Behavior. And this is everything that has to do with uh, sort of the economic decision making, but you can look at decision making in a sort of economic uh, realm very broadly. So anything that adds value of some sort, so not just uh, financial decisions, but also related to health or the environment, for example. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're building that up. So that takes a lot of uh, uh, dedication. And we're running uh, a lot of uh, studies and uh, sort of um, uh, more sort of consultancy projects for uh, ministries of different sorts. And yeah, most of it is now focused on uh, financial decision making, and especially uh, financial uh, uh, decision making by individuals, how sort of people can make uh, ends meet and not worry too much about uh, uh, their issues, etc. Oh, that's that's very interesting. And uh, do you, for example, uh, consult people uh, besides the university to make uh, better decisions, like financial decisions? Yeah. So most of it is more indirect via policy makers. So uh, one project that we have been involved in uh, for the past uh, years, for example, is with my uh, former uh, PhD candidates and now manager of the center, Minou van der Werf. And uh, one of the studies she ran was actually with uh, students uh, loans uh, by mm -hmm. duo. So she looked at uh, sort of the, the what we called a choice architecture, or uh, sort of provide students with better information to make more informed decisions about their loans. Because of course, these run for several decades, and so uh, yeah, your situation now is likely to be very different from your situation in the future. And so, how do you weigh all these things in a proper manner that's you know you need some uh, you need some good uh, background information for that mm -hmm. and so we tried uh, different uh, information letters and, and sort of looked at uh, 
sort of whether uh, students would adjust their loans uh, accordingly, not not necessarily downwards, but just sort of reconsider their loan amount. Okay, that's that's very interesting. Um, because people usually try to use uh, financial behaviors in a way to like manipulate people to consume more, but kind of you're working in the opposite side to prevent yeah, it, right? Indeed, okay. indeed. indeed. We want to make, uh, help people make uh, wiser decisions, <laughs> not, <laughs> not decisions that uh, make uh, companies uh, earn more money necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's, that's great. Um, okay, maybe we can uh, dive into our subject more. Uh, thank you for introducing yourself. So today we will be talking about the influence of fear in uh, our lives and especially on human behavior. And we can start with a common example from our daily lives, the use of fearful pictures on tobacco products, for example. And considering your expertise in social psychology, would you say this helps actually to prevent smoking? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite topics and one that I also always address in my uh, introduction to social psychology lectures because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it, it's formal policy. It's EU-based policy since uh, 2014. It's mandatory to have these images on these cigarette packages. And so, of course, the underlying assumption is that it scares people out of smoking. Uh, but the research is almost, uh, you know, unanimously, there have been some positive result, but most are ambiguous or negative. Uh, and so the findings actually suggest that it does scare people, but it doesn't change their behavior. And uh, what does that mean? Why, why doesn't change their behavior? So one of the examples that uh, I really like that illustrates this is a uh, combined uh, sort of neuroscience or neuropsychological behavioral experiments where they examined uh, people's attention to these uh, gory uh, uh, sort of uh, consequences of smoking, like uh, rotting uh, teeth and, uh, you know, black lungs, etc. And uh, they compared the uh, people's attention to these pictures to more sort of regular smoking related pictures of cigarette packs, et cetera, or people smoking. And they examined uh, both a non-smoking group and a smoking uh, group of participants. And as they measured uh, people's sort of response times uh, to these pictures as uh, sort of indicating their attention to these pictures, but also uh, they recorded uh, uh, ERP signals. So uh, 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 voltages on your uh, scalp that correlate to certain uh, attentional indices in the brain. Uh, that's pretty well-founded uh, literature. And so what I found through examining these response times and these, these ERPs and this uh, series of studies that uh, yes, indeed, uh, those scary pictures captured the attention of both uh, smoking and non-smoking uh, participants. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> they also saw <laughs> that the smoking group was then much more efficient in detaching their attention from these pictures. So they were much better at then subsequently avoiding the content of these pictures. And so they, 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 it seemed as if they had developed a certain strategy to cope with these threats and uh, sort of detaching themselves right. from it. 
And of course, it, it makes sense. We also know more mundane uh, strategies like people buying special cases where they put their cigarette packs in so they don't need to look at it anymore. <laughs> or otherwise, others turn it into a game and everything, you know, uh, select them or collect them all. Uh, <laughs> sort of the, <laughs> that, of course, also yeah. takes away sort of the, 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 the threat of it. And uh, yeah, the reason uh, for this, uh, a lot of uh, psychologists have argued is uh, th that it's an addictive behavior. So you don't change it so easily. And so scaring people without providing them with adequate means <laughs> to change is, is only going to, you know, create even greater uh, dissonance. And so they, they deal with the threats in a different way. I was wondering uh, on the pictures that are on the cigarette cartons, depending on how disgusting they are to look at, is there a difference in response? I don't know of this research, to be fair. So I can imagine that it correlates. So the more, you know, the more intense, I, I suppose the stronger the uh, attention grabbing effect, but it could well be that also the more avoidance people are. Right? Yeah, because I was wondering if the the stronger reaction is to even ignore it more and look away and maybe buy cases for them, wouldn't that make things worse? Support, yeah, would <laughs> wouldn't it support the behavior and even maybe satisfy the companies who sell the cigarettes? Yeah, that would be a very ironic uh, yeah. <laughs> effect. A very interesting hypothesis, I have to say. I mean. It could well be because if people learn to deal with these uh, sort of tensions in a different way, and this sort of becomes their habitual uh, strategy, yeah, <laughs> and uh, for one, it's not going to help them, and it may actually make it less likely for them to sort of think that they can change their behavior. Yeah, I so, could just uh, butt in. Um, so you were saying this previous study that they did find. A sort of um, elicited reaction from these from these gross pictures, but mm -hmm. actually, then to what extent does fear or the fear of these nasty pictures really influence someone's behavior? Because it seems as though it influ influences you enough to, you know, ignore it, but it doesn't actually, uh, you know, really change your behavior. And okay, well, I'm going to quit smoking. Because how how does fear play a role in really the addiction aspect of um, yeah, so that's the whole point of why I wrote this blog. <laughs> that fear has an effect, of course. I mean, it, it, we can feel it. <laughs> I mean, fear is very arousing. It affects our attitudes to a large extent. But it does not usually translate into behavior, and it especially doesn't translate into behavior when we don't feel like we're in control of things. We have the means to change the behavior. So in those situations, fear can actually backfire. And when people uh, start to feel helpless or they habituate or they even you know, counteract uh, through a reactance, so uh, that's that's basically why I decided to write this. <laughs> but then is there a sort of a solution? Is there another way that you can influence the behavior in a positive way instead of instead of then using fear, maybe resorting to another method to? Yeah, so I, I think uh, mo it's not an easy route, but uh, most health uh, psychologists argue that for people to change behavior, they, they need to feel that they're in control, right? So you need to provide them with a sort of an optimistic outlook somehow, and, and that's, that's usually by actual support. 
Uh, and so in sort of to, to some credit to this new policy uh, of the EU, they did uh, the demand that along with these gory pictures, uh, they uh, there had to be a phone number for for sort of a health professional that could you know provide counseling and guidance when you wanted to quit smoking. But uh, I doubt that anyone has ever noticed <laughs> that on the package because it's, it's a really small text underneath the uh, picture. So, you know, that, 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 that I think was based on this sort of finding that health psychologists uh, have, you know, rep repeatedly uh, demonstrated that you can only change behavior when people feel that they, you know, have the capacity to like do the, so. The control to do so, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And if I may ask, what, what sparked your interest in this exact topic in behavior change and the role of fear? Uh, so more generally, yeah. I'm just very uh, interested in the role of emotions in decision making for better and worse. And uh, I noticed that in, in a lot of, you know, communication by uh, governments, uh, businesses, etc. Emotions are used, right? Or sort of emotional appeals are used, and um, I I doubt that that is the right um, <laughs> sort of uh, way to make people, you know, adjust their behavior and make wise decisions. I think it sort of short circuits um, in depth uh, uh, reasoning, right? So you don't actually provide people with uh, content based arguments, but you just sort of, you know scare them or guilt them or shame them or make them you know excited about them <laughs> into something and uh yeah i think it, it has an effect uh, of course uh, and especially in the short run but over the long run it sort of erodes this more sort of rational more decision making. yeah 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 yeah, I was also wondering, um, you wrote in your blog that people are aware of the yeah, persuasive um, effects or, or intentions the, the media have, um, but we are also used to seeing gory pictures or very, yeah, very extreme pictures in the media. So do you think that has an impact on those fear appeals? Yeah, so I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to say that we're always aware. So I, I see different um, mechanisms at play at the same time. So uh, I think some people are more aware of this than others. Uh, and it's true that uh, there's this sort of desensitization, you could say, uh, uh, to uh, extreme emotional uh, or graphic material. Uh, in the media, and so I think I also mentioned that at some point so that uh, that you know over time people uh, sort of habituate to this, and so that's another risk of using these tactics uh, too much uh, because they, they they sort of that's you know it, it, they start to normalize <laughs> these uh, threats. I also had a question about the approach of the university about this smoking behavior uh, around like library, uh, the campus, and they kind of try to prevent smoking. And uh, I know that they're creating these smoke-free areas and they want to become smoke-free university. Mm -hmm. I, I was uh, wondering if this could actually create the opposite effect, like it can backfire because it's very evident and it's like pushing people to not to smoke uh, in those areas, and those areas are getting bigger and wider. So, how this will affect students' smoking behavior? 
Um, I don't know about this exact policy, but of course this reflects the more generic uh, approach that we see also by governments in public spaces, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a scare tactic. <laughs> it's done in a different way, sort of uh, actually creating fewer and fewer opportunities for people to smoke, uh, and especially in combination with other activities that they enjoy, like socializing, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know the figures by heart, but I dare to say that this, this has uh, reduced smoking. Uh, so a smaller percentage of people uh, smoke, but I don't think... It's it reduces smoking to zero, <laughs> so mm -hmm. obviously. Uh, I don't know. It, um, it, it could work, but mm -hmm. uh, you're a student, and so maybe you're a smoker, so maybe you have a, a different perspective on this. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm a non-smoker. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, I don't think I'm <laughs> If I were you, I'd keep it that way. <laughs> Anyone who smokes among you? <laughs> I don't. No, no, no. No. That's a very healthy... Uh, We're a healthy group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do know that uh, along this this logic, for example, uh, uh, they're, they're now prohibiting smoking in school uh, yards. And that makes a lot of sense, I, I think, because uh, especially uh, t the teenagers uh, are vulnerable to peer pressure and... Uh, so it makes a lot of sense that, that at that sort of age, you, you, you don't want to expose them uh, too much on the, to these uh, opportunities. So, mm -hmm. but that's, so that's an actual legal intervention, but it, it, it is affecting people through more social psychological mechanisms of social norms and peer pressure. So I think that's interesting. And just actually, because you just mentioned um, age groups and obviously adolescence is also a time where you experience new things and obviously you're more subject to this peer pressure. But would you say that um, the way your your behaviors influence uh, and then by fear specifically, that that then differs per age group? That, for example, an older age group would be less triggered by fearful images compared to a younger adolescents that just started smoking, if that has more of an influential role? Uh, okay, so what I've heard is that so this is uh, I cannot back it up with the article, but I'm pretty I, I'm uh, I've heard that this research has been done. Uh, they actually found that for young people, it sounds a bit uh, cynical, but they're mo the most effective fear to, to reduce uh, folk, uh, smoking in, in uh, adolescence was uh, the effect smoking has on their appearance, <laughs> not on <laughs> disease, because disease is yeah. in the future. It takes decades for these diseases to develop, but uh, sort of the, the, the effects on your looks, they uh, happen much quicker. <laughs> so I think the age group, it, it's not a straightforward answer, I think. It depends on the nature of the threat. Yeah, uh, you, yeah. you see the same in the current uh, COVID situation. Of course, young people are less affected. It's a thousandfold difference in risk between uh, young people and older people. And they're, you know, of dying of COVID. So, and at first we didn't know that, of course, but now we know this. And of course that affects people's uh, risk perception and accordingly their behavior makes a lot of sense. So I think for smoking, it works the same way. 
There's one study that came out recently that nicely links the two uh, topics because we also know that smokers that, that, uh, are at a heightened risk of uh, having uh, severe consequences of a COVID uh, infection. And I, I ran across this study, will um, surveyed uh, 700 cigar smokers and they examined whether the, the COVID pandemic uh, led them to uh, quit smoking uh, more, which is an interesting question, right? <laughs> Especially in relation to this topic uh, we're discussing. Um, and what they found was, uh, you know, those who, were, who perceived uh, the, the personal risks more, uh, they uh, communicated greater intentions of quitting. However, <laughs> they actually, <laughs> the majority of them either uh, kept, you know, kept smoking at the same rate or increased. There was only a very small minority that actually decreased smoking during the last year. So that again shows, you know, it doesn't translate into uh, actual behavior. That's also interesting because, for example, you talk about the physical appearance and with the corona pandemic, its, it's consequences are more immediate than other diseases such as cancer or yeah. things yeah, like so that. We it actually a... have corona next week too. So yeah. I wondered why it didn't change their behavior, even if they... Maybe they felt they were a lost cause already. I don't know. Maybe they thought my lungs are already so bad, so it's not going to make a difference anymore. I don't know. But probably I think it's um, because of the pandemic, people also have probably more are more stressed or and um, yeah, it's an addiction. So probably uh, people um, smoking increases probably because of the pandemic. So probably if you research this afterwards or if they because I really think people are becoming more aware of the risks but it's also really stressful um, time. Yeah, so that brings us back to the control uh, aspect, right? So yeah. there are so many other forces at play now that, uh, you know, they don't see the means to quit smoking at this point. They just, you know, they're dealing with so many issues already that uh, quitting smoking is just too much to, uh, to uh, take up on. So we have to follow them for the next years to come and we'll see how yeah. they uh, do. <laughs> Perhaps we'll see a steep decline of smokers after the pandemic. Yeah, that would be a great yeah. study. Uh, let's email the, the authors of the article. <laughs> I was wondering, maybe, would there be a difference in the effectiveness of fear tactics in preventing people from getting addicted to smoking as opposed to having people quit smoking? Yeah, I think there are some uh, researchers who would suggest that. And that I think also relates to a question that was uh, raised before, right? Uh, whether lessons would be a group to target specifically because they have not yet developed this habit, they're not addicted yet. And so they are most, yeah, if you can reach them at that age, that, uh, that has, uh, you know, the, the highest success rate probably. So I can see that uh, works out. And I was also, well, sort of, you know, knowing that we would have this podcast, I have two kids <laughs> at the age of six and nine. And so my oldest now sort of starts to, you know, wander around in the neighborhood by himself and also crossing uh, dangerous streets and all that. And then uh, my neighbor told me she saw him run across the street uh, not looking around and you know ending it was a pretty uh, nasty sort of dangerous situation well 
but you know, nothing happened. But of course that shocked me quite a bit hearing that from my neighbor. And so I, I told him about this near accident that I once had as a child and about all these, you know, extreme uh, accidents that could happen. And then I realized that I was actually scaring him <laughs> to make him, you know, more careful in, in traffic. And so, uh, yeah, that's, I, I don't know. I think it's a fairly normal child rearing technique <laughs> and it, it has an effect uh, because you make, make them aware of the potential risks of their behavior. Uh, so I can see that for smoking, it works the same, but then, you know, there are all these other forces, uh, social forces mostly that uh, work against that. And then of course, the policies like, you know, no smoking on schoolyards in combination maybe with good risk uh, communication. Uh, yeah, it could be really effective there. And Lotte, I have a personal question for you. Uh, do you have any fears yourself and how does it affect your behavior? Do you do you see its um, effects as healthy or unhealthy on your own behavior? So I think, yeah, I have fears, obviously. Well, one I already uh, explained, uh, you know, I don't want to have my kids end up in a traffic accident. <laughs> That's a real fear. And you don't want to think about that too much. Uh, but I also have more uh, sort of abstract fears. And one in particular is related to the pandemic. I'm not afraid of COVID, but I, I, uh, being a social psychologist, I was quite uh, yeah, struck by how, how it affected social dynamics. And this, uh, in particular, yeah, the sort of the, the democratic aspects of, uh, of a nation and uh, how easily now freedoms are being restricted and also how judgmental people have become to, towards one another. Mm -hmm. uh, that really scares me. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think it's a good thing. Okay. <laughs> so uh, what it, how it affected me? Well, one, one uh, effect that had it, I decided to you know, write something about it every so often. So I wrote a blog about uh, COVID tests in the summer and I wrote another one about fear appeals <laughs> in December. And maybe then we'll write another one in the <laughs> near future about uh, sort of the claiming the moral uh, grounds and how this, uh, you know, uh, impedes uh, sort of content-based uh, exchange of ideas and how we sort of all, you know, shove uh, away in our own corner. That's, yeah, that's, that scares me. So you talked about uh, your concerns about the pandemic, especially, for example, in social situations. And um, if I'm not wrong, you talked about the polarization of people in this pandemic, yeah. right? Yeah. And, okay, that's interesting. Could you explain that a bit more? Why do they polarize, especially in this pandemic? I think the topic uh, has become moralized. So either you're for uh, in favor of uh, restrictive measures or you're against it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's no middle grounds anymore. And so we're not sort of looking at each of these measures uh, individually and sort of, uh, you know, evaluate them and exchange ideas. So uh, and there's some research already sort of supporting this. Uh, so uh, there's some research already showing that people find it more acceptable 
to engage in public shaming, for example, uh, if uh, of people who are sort of criticizing uh, COVID policy, for example, compared to other topics. So this shows that uh, the, the topic has become uh, moralized, or what they what the researchers would uh, label sacred values. And so these are sort of values that people are more defensive about, and yeah, less willing to uh, discuss. Mm -hmm. All right. What do you think? Maybe that the fear of contracting the COVID makes more people um, react like that? Because yeah. there are many, many, many topics that we could have uh, had arguments about in the past years, but none led to yeah. such a polarized society. Yeah, I do think that plays a role. And that, that the, the studies that I'm referring to, and I can provide a reference uh, to you, I actually investigated that. And I, I did see a relationship with personal uh, fear of uh, COVID. Uh, yeah, so it was a direct link. It was not the only link, but, uh, and I think the same for uh, climate change, or, you know, it's not the only topic that's, you know, we approach in this manner. But uh, I think generally it just sort of impedes uh, problem solving because we're no longer, no longer sorting arguments but people, right? Yes. Whereas, you know, you can really dislike someone, but that person may have a really good argument among very many bad arguments, vice versa, <laughs> right? So just saying that someone, uh, you know, has the right attitude towards something and that's why it's a good person or you know has the wrong attitude and that's why it's a bad person it's hardly ever like that right there's some extreme you know proponents and opponents for something usually but the middle group is very diverse and yeah, it seems as if it's, you know, that group doesn't exist, whereas in, in reality, it's the majority. <laughs> yes, but if we talk about, if we talk about fear, I think the middle group could be scared uh, also that, uh, scared of the opinions of other people, so they don't yeah. speak up. Is that a reason also? Yeah, I do think so. I mean, I already find that myself. I'm uh, sort of, when I'm writing things, I try to be very careful, uh, yeah, not to sort of be too, um, too, too taking sides too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think as a scientist, you have that uh, sort of obligation anyway. But uh, I, I know that so this plays a role in uh, this kind of uh, debates. Yeah. And there's just one interesting, well, there are a lot of studies being done right now, of course, why people looking into why people comply to measures, etc. There's this one study from Japan, and I also mentioned this in my lecture this year when we talked about conformity. They surveyed a thousand Japanese, very representative of the population, on the reasons why they comply to wearing facial masks. And the one the first and most important reason was not their fear of um, like, uh, catching COVID, but it was because other people were doing it. And then the second reason was their own fear, and then only then their concern for other people. <laughs> so is this uh, related to normative conformity? Yeah, I think conformity uh, goes hand in hand with uh, fear appeals. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we can end up with a question, which is, uh, do you think we live in a world now where people get scared more often and why? For example, uh, there's a difference in knowledge in the first and second wave of Corona. And did they change the fear of people? 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I haven't done the research, uh, so I'm sure there's research to really answer, address this question. Um, I think we know much better now what the risks are than uh, a year uh, ago. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that has changed the perception of uh, a lot of people, I think, uh, but uh, not all. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if it, you know, heightened uh, sort of fear levels across the population, but it probably did heighten uh, fear of uh, infect, uh, infectious diseases uh, for, for a certain group of people. But maybe at the cost of another uh, fear, right? So I also briefly touch upon that in my uh, blog. So it could be that we only have so much capacity for uh, being scared. And so, so being scared of one thing sort of pushes out uh, being scared of another thing is what they call this finite pool of worry. And you know, the, the, the evidence is mixed in this regard. But uh, yeah, it's true that we're less concerned about other diseases, right? We're spending uh, billions of uh, euros and dollars on uh, fighting COVID, but we mm-hmm. also still have malaria and all these other very dangerous diseases. And that some of these uh, diseases, actually, infection rates have gone up over the past year. <laughs> so, yeah, we can only fight uh, only so many threats at the same time. <laughs> yes, thank you. I just have um, I just have one more sort of enveloping question um, to uh, round it off. Obviously, the underlying theme of uh, today's podcast was fear, and um, we've heard a lot about the different studies and um, the role of fear and behavior. But I think maybe it's nice also for the listeners to. Um, explain a little bit the psychology behind it. So really like the social function, maybe that fear as an emotion, um, how that works and, and what it has. Yeah, of course, because, you know, I, I don't mean to say that uh, being scared or experiencing fear is a bad thing, <laughs> uh, right? It's a very uh, functional emotion. And uh, sort of uh, looking at it from a sort of functional perspective, most emotion researchers would argue that Fear is a response to threats that leads you to either fight the threats uh, or flight away, you know, uh, from the threats. Or and there's a, a third option which is freeze, and that's in a situation where you're not yet sure what the best uh, behavioral option is. So that will then translate into uh, fight or flight. And of course, this is a very functional uh, uh, behavior, especially in, uh, when it comes to imminent. Uh, threats, right? And that's sort of the link with uh, other uh, animal species where you sort of, uh, someone is, uh, you know, after your life, <laughs> there's a predator, for example, or you have to stay away from a high uh, um, drop off, a uh, deep drop off. So in, in those cases, it's very functional. But uh, like I also mentioned in the blog, and this is from a research by. Uh, Robert Sapolsky, who's a biologist and a neuroscientist, um, he studies the stress response in, uh, in animals and in uh, humans. And he compares that. And what he shows is that we have this capacity to project fears in the future and to sort of elaborate on fears from the past. <laughs> and so that's a huge difference, difference compared to animals, right? We only are uh, afraid in the present. 
And that unfortunately also had some, you know, side effects that are less, uh, yeah, desirable. So we can have this prolonged uh, stress response as a result and be anxious about very irrational uh, threats. Thank you for all your answers, Lotte. I think we learned a lot and it was very useful for us. And um, we learned that even fear is a very powerful and sometimes uh, unhealthy, but uh, also a healthy emotion that prevents us from doing harmful behaviors, for example. It doesn't always have the effect on influencing our uh, behavior. So it doesn't end up changing our behavior, uh, especially in um, quitting smoking, for example, not all the time. So thank you for all the information that you provided. I really, really enjoyed it. And I hope um, you had a great time with us uh, talking about this subject. Well, uh, yes, it's been my pleasure. And uh, so uh, I hope uh, <laughs> that I've been able to contribute here. Thank you for your presence. You, and yeah. um, we'll put all the references you mentioned and we'll put them in the description of the yeah, that would be a good, I think. So, so most of it is in the blog, and then the ones that aren't in the blog, I will email them to you. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. You just listened to the second episode of Leiden Psychology Perspective, the podcast series. Thanks for listening. If you want, please let us know what you think of our podcast by leaving a review. More reviews means it's easier for people to find us. Thanks in advance. See you next episode.